need someone to be around you. Someone to sit down and pour you short chew. But sometimes saying goodbye to familiar folks is the only way. Sometimes that's when you finally find your space. Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Pellegrini, recording in Tokyo, Japan. And with me, as always, recording in Fukuoka, is my co host, Stephen Lyman. We're both certified shochu and awamori professionals, published authors, and honestly, we are relatively recent converts to the world and joy of cocktails. We've been exploring the wonderful world of Japanese spirits for a combined three decades, and we're very excited to share them with you through this podcast. Stephen, how you doing? I'm doing well, Christopher. Glad to have you back. I've、uh, been trying to keep this ship afloat, and、uh, this episode was inspired by a couple of things. One was we just did our Koji Spirits cocktail competition a few weeks ago. There will be a YouTube video posted soon of that experience. Of course, we had a couple of episodes about Japanese cocktails while you were away. Right. And as you came back, you said to me, it's all about cocktails. And that intrigued me. <laughs> so. I really want to get into that. I want to have that conversation with you and understand where you're coming from because I've been having these conversations for years and I've always been somewhat skeptical, but we'll get into that. But、uh, how, how was your trip and、uh, how are you feeling? Yeah, I left Tokyo on April 16th and did this gigantic kind of counterclockwise loop around the United States, starting on the West Coast and ending on the West Coast. Seven weeks, a little bit longer than seven weeks. I flew out of Los Angeles on June 4th. And landed on the 5th. So, yeah, I've been back in Japan for about a week. And as you know, we're already planning our next trip, but it was good. It was a, a great opportunity to spend a lot of time, a lot, a lot, a lot of time with bartenders, picking their brains, learning about cocktail approaches. And, you know, how do you deal with when you're constructing a new cocktail, when you're coming up with something from scratch? What are the different elements that you try to keep in play in your mind? And, How do you balance those things? And, and do you start with a feeling? Do you start with a new ingredient? What, what's the deal? And so it was really interesting to just pick people's brains and help educate myself on something that, like I said before, I really was not super into until really the last couple of years. Yeah. I mean, cocktails have been a blind spot for me for a long time as well. I think if you follow me on social media, you'll see my evolution as I've started to. Learn about them and, and find them intriguing. And you and I might have both grown up in the same era where cocktails were just overly sweetened, you know, with, with sour mixes and, and no fresh ingredients. And those just were never very good.、Mm-hmm. They were just sugary alcohol bombs and that just didn't appeal. Times have changed, but it took me a while to realize that, I guess. So we've covered classic Japanese cocktails. That was episode 58 with Matt Alt. And then, of course, our Koji Spirits cocktail competition. And then you coming back, of course, what's the natural topic? Sure. Of course. Yeah. Koji cocktails, Koji cocktails all the way. So let's do it. Yep. As we discussed in episode 58, and we'll expand on here, cocktails as we know them today were really innovated in the US back in the 19th century. And they were built off the back of English punches. So these were batched punches where you'd you know, get your punch bowl out and you'd Get a bunch of fruit juice and, and alcohol and mix it up with ice. And that would be what you just ladled out and served to, to your guests. And then the American bartenders took that to batching the punch. So they were building the drinks one at a time, as opposed to making a big bowl of something for people to、uh, enjoy. 
Right. And of course, keep in mind that most of the spirits in use at that time weren't, how do I put this um, judiciously? They were crap in, in a lot of cases. <laughs> and they were, they needed to be covered up. Their imperfections had to be glossed over. And one way that you could do that was with punches and later cocktails as they were innovated in the US market. That was a way really to make lemonade out of lemons, for lack of a better um, phrase, I guess. Scotch whiskey at the time was typically only aged as long as it took for the newly filled cask to really just travel from the distillery to its final destination, which often was not very long. And before bottles became the standard vessel, these casks would be set up in a bar and, and basically they are emptied as they ordered and you, you kick the cask and then you roll the next one up there. So depending on, of course, on how busy that actual bar was, the whiskey could be consumed quite young or any age months older than that. And any number of mixers could have been necessary to cover up its youth or if it's in there too long, just the brashness of the cask of the charred oak, you know? Yeah, I can't imagine much of that was very good. Oh, no. Yeah. So you'd need to cover it up with sugar, sweeteners, fruit juices, whatever you had available. And another kind of interesting tidbit is that cocktails were originally consumed throughout the day. <laughs> there are quotes from pretty famous Americans, especially saying that they'd have a cocktail with breakfast and they would just sort of continue throughout the day. And that's something we don't really talk much about when we're discussing American history. Sure. But many of our esteemed forefathers, I think, spent a lot of their waking hours intoxicated. If you think about it, like drinking water wasn't very safe, right? Sure. So you get a low proof alcohol. The fruit juice is actually giving you nutrients. Yeah. And sugar was a, a rare commodity that you needed for energy. So in some ways, this was a safer way <laughs> of living. Jeez. What's the refrain from the thin man um, that, that that it's like? Yeah, it's a cocktail in the morning to take the edge off or something like that. The ed edge off of what? I would like to know. Probably the hangover, but but it's probably more likely just take the edge off of life a little bit <laughs> that you're confronting on a on a daily basis. You know? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was Mark Twain who said that he feels sorry for people who don't drink because that's when they wake up. That's as good as they're going to feel all day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very fair. Yeah. So uh, it's a, but it was a different era. You know, I think we've now understand much more about the dangers of alcohol and there's science behind it and that sort of thing. As we talked about in our, our mindful drinking episode at the beginning of the year, yep. it was just a different era. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, I digress. Just to, to continue a little bit of the history lesson that we've got kind of revved up here. So naturally you had the cocktails evolving in Europe at, at the same time that they were getting going in the U S. So is pretty logical that common Western spirits were really the ones that were used as the foundation, the backbone for pretty much every cocktail recipe at the time. There wasn't really any concurrent culture, any similar culture, or any similar movement happening in Asian countries at the time. It's true, essentially imported into Japan and other parts of Asia by visiting people from around the world. And this left us with an entire world of Asian spirits that don't really have long-lived cocktail traditions. They haven't really found their place yet in many cases. But of course, this is the Japan Distilled Podcast. So we're going to set aside the Korean sojus of the world and the Chinese baijos of the world. And we're going to focus on 
Honkaku Shochu and Ryukyu Awamori today. For as long as I've been doing shochu promotion and education in the United States, the Japanese Sake and Shochu Makers Association, or JSS, and the makers themselves have tried to focus on cocktails as a way to introduce shochu and awamori to Western markets. Yes, they have. For a long time, I was just so skeptical of this approach because most imported shochu is bottled at 24-25% alcohol, and most cocktail-based spirits are 40% or higher. Were similar conversations being had when you were visiting Europe or doing promotion in Japan? I was, like you, very skeptical about the entire plugging in of shochu and awamori into these very Western cocktail traditions. And I did not pay it much mind. And you and I spent years really trying to push the more traditional serves, traditional in the way that they're served here in Japan. You know, because yes, it, it is a the difference in ABV requires a significant amount of dexterity on the part of the bartender in many situations. It took a long time for me to come around. I was a purist. And after the last few trips to the States, I now think that I'm going to say it. I now think that cocktails really are key to unlocking the entire market, at least busting the door open so that people finally know what shochu and awamori are. It's going through cocktails. And that, I just saw it everywhere I went around the States, seven weeks. You can talk till you're blue in the face about the history and the people and the production methods and all of those things that we find fascinating and beautiful about the category. But at the end of the day, if you want it to stick at the front of a bartender's mind, if you want it top of mind for somebody working the floor of a liquor store so that they're going to hand sell it to their best customers, there has to be an application. The path of least resistance on the application is the cocktail. That That is a, a excellent summary. And I think I'm having a slower uh, evolution to that position than than you've had, uh, but I am getting there. And I think when you and I hit on the idea of our first Koji Spirits cocktail competition, it was really like, hey, maybe we can get some interesting novel recipes out of our listeners that can can help with this expansion. But I think the key for the home bartender, if a liquor store owner is going to be hand selling shochu or awamori to one of their regular customers and talking about cocktail applications, it's really useful to have simple cocktails to <laughs> for the home bartender. Three and four ingredient max. Exactly. But as I mentioned at the top of the episode, cocktails were never really my thing. I tend not to like sweet beverages. And my impression mm-hmm. of cocktails when I was younger was developed during the battle days of the Cosmo and the Long Island iced tea and these just sugar bombs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the one exception for me was a gin martini. Mm-hmm. I really still love a well-made martini. It's always been a favorite of mine. But those are bone dry. Mm -hmm. Other than what's in the vermouth, there's no sugar in that drink. And I guess for me, I would rather taste the spirit itself than its integration into a cocktail. At least that's that was my mindset before. I think that's why I liked a very dry gin martini, because I could taste the gin. Mm -hmm. Now I can appreciate a more balanced martini where the vermouth and the gin actually amplify each other or complement each other. And for me, that's become actually a, a preferred way of drinking it. I think you may have taken a cocktail as a a little bit faster than I did. Yeah, I mean, it It was really just, we're going to chalk it up to research, essentially. My impression of you, and maybe I'm completely wrong, and maybe I don't know you as well as I thought I did, is this is before the pandemic, right? When you were a purist, but then if you weren't out at a shochu bar and you're out drinking with your friends, you might go to a cocktail bar. You might enjoy that different experience. Is that not true? 
Yeah, I guess maybe because of where I live, I didn't have much of a choice. I was so often being asked for recommendations and showing people around Tokyo when they were in town. And everybody hears about the precision of the Japanese cocktail, you know, the Japanese cocktail scene and how you can get these amazing drinks at all of these amazing cocktail bars with people in, in these beautiful suits. And, and I figured I need to figure this out. So I probably went to all of the most famous cocktail bars over the years, a couple of times, just so that I could tell people where they are and just so that I could say what they were like and what the mood, the vibe was like and whether or not people would be up for that and the total ticket price, of course, as well. How much is the average cocktail there? But it is something like we've talked about a million times before. The cocktail traditions here were the classics that we, you know, if you had enough money, you could enjoy them and enjoy them well in the States, especially when we were just getting out of college and in our 20s and 30s. But there wasn't the type of creativity that I was really interested in, especially with my my upbringing in the craft beer world and where creativity is really, you know, honestly the name of the game a lot of the time Mm -hmm. and bringing out new brands and new labels all the time. That is something that is also inherent in the craft cocktail scene in the United States where the menus is menus are changing seasonally, at least at a lot of these places. There's just innovation on top of innovation and creativity, new ingredients, new, new infusions, new everything. And none of that was happening in Japan and still to a certain degree is not happening on any great scale yet. Yeah. Not too many places. There are certainly bars that are specializing now in the, in the modern cocktail. They're coming around. There's been a boomerang, right? Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And there's, there are some pretty pioneering bartenders that are having a go at it. And it's remarkable to watch. And some of the best places to go and drink right now, honestly, is at their places. Um, but I think I ended up through all of those experiences. I think I'm, I was still in a similar place that you were, which is I don't really like sweet cocktails. I still don't to this day. And that was something that was hard for me to get around. I mean, I was going to these really beautiful cocktail bars and I was always drinking the same things and it was fine. I, you know, I love a good old fashioned. I love a good Manhattan. I love, I love a, a nice dry martini, as you mentioned before, and a million things in, in between. I love to, you know, mess with Vespers and, and other, other gin cocktails, mezcal. I love mezcal cocktails right now. And they, that is definitely not a thing here. <laughs> True. So I, I treated it as something that was worth studying, worth my attention but it never really caught me. It, it never really sucked me down the rabbit hole like Shochu and Awamori so quickly did. Mm-hmm. And I can't say that I've been sucked down the rabbit hole yet, but I do know where the rabbit hole is now. Sure, I know where the entrance is and I can see it and I'm watching it warily uh, <laughs> because I feel like I could get dragged down there at any moment. I'm enjoying it a hell of a lot more right now. Sure. Yeah, I think I uh, completely agree. I now know where to find good cocktails in Fukuoka, in Tokyo, in Mm -hmm. New York, wherever I travel, I can go find a good cocktail. And I'm finding myself gravitating to doing that usually as a stop after dinner, have one or two drinks, talk to the bartender and and head out, you know, a much more sedate experience than than I think uh, I would have done when I was younger. But where my shift happened was actually, I think, 
twofold. One was the pandemic, right? A lot of free time at home. And the second was my decision last year not to drink as much beer. Sure. Right. So I was looking for something else to sip on while cooking dinner or winding down my work day. Right. And I didn't want to immediately reach for a glass of spirits. And I, a light bulb clicked for me. And it was, you have a blind spot. You don't really know how to mix a proper cocktail. Why don't you learn how to do that? So I just started to make the classics. I bought all the correct ingredients. My home bar is still not extensive. I don't have a lot of the things I would need to make some of the classics, mm -hmm. but I can now make enough of them competently that I feel like I've reached a certain level, but I don't, I'm not ready to gus out my home bar with 40 different liqueurs that I'm going to use twice a year. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, fair. no, that's you. You don't have the space for it at all. Exactly. Stanley Tucci. Um, so but I you know, this makes a lot of sense that you would take it to that level, because during the pandemic, you also got pretty deeply into cooking at home, right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, having lived in New York for so long and had so many friends who are chefs, I spent a lot of time in their kitchens and listening to them talk about cooking. And I realized like I needed something to do with my hands. And I couldn't go out to eat, which I love to do. So I started to make food at home. And with the help of the New York Times app, uh, cooking app, and the, I guess, the knowledge that I'd absorbed from those uh, chef friends over the years, I was pretty quickly making restaurant quality dishes. Now, not everything hit, not everything was great, but enough times I'd be like, oh, wait, this could be on a menu. Mm -hmm. I'm only making it for <laughs> you know my family. I'm not cooking for... 40, 50 turns a night or whatever, you know, you do in a restaurant, but there was a great deal of satisfaction in doing that with cooking. And I realized, wait, if I'm not making good home cocktails, I can do it. I just need to apply myself. Sure. But I actually think of making cocktails a little bit more like baking than cooking because I can improvise in cooking. I cannot improvise in baking. You improvise in baking, you, your, your dough doesn't rise mm. or your, you know, it burns or whatever. Cooking has more leniency. I think cocktails are actually closer to baking. I think you got to get those proportions right. You got to get the temperature right, you know, the right amount of dilution. Yep. There's a lot more to making a cocktail than I think people realize. Oh, certainly. At least making one well. There's a lot of debate that you hear among cocktail fans about shaken or stirred, right? That's the classic James Bond line is shaken, not stirred. Mm -hmm. But anybody who loves a good gin martini will actually say stirred, not shaken, mm -hmm. because the texture changes and the texture of the vermouth is nicer with stir them with the shake in a martini and that's a hill i'll die on but anyway yeah <laughs> yeah i mean and i'm gonna bring it back to koji spirits now one way that you can improvise at home and that's something that we've both been doing quite a lot of is by swapping out those what we said before were the common western base spirits and using show to an aomori instead you can sometimes keep the same ratios you sometimes need to adjust them a little bit. You need to keep the amount of acidity in mind and the amount of sweetness in mind and and the bitterness in mind. And how do you get those things to balance out? They're not going to be classic cocktails anymore necessarily, but riffs are great. And the creativity that comes with it is just, you know, it's part of the fun. And that's what makes cocktail culture so attractive for me in all the places that I visited in the States. And, and then also some of the new places that are here, I think of a place called Folklore here in Tokyo, which is a great cocktail bar that uses a lot of a lot of shochu, a lot of awamori, even some sake in their cocktails. You go down to El Lekio down in in Okinawa in Naha, and you just you know you get a lot of very very interesting riffs on classic cocktails, but with awamori in there. That creativity, I think, is what's 
really what it's all about in cocktails right now. And I think it's something that Honkaku Shochu and Ryukyu Aomori have to be a part of if they really want to find any type of traction anytime soon. I hear you. But this was where my skepticism started. Sure. Was if a classic gin or whiskey cocktail is a classic, why would anybody really want to swap out the base? Mm -hmm. And when I want a bracingly cold gin martini, I want a very dried gin as the base, right? I may adjust the vermouth to to determine how dry the drink's going to be, but that's it. Yeah. Turns out I wasn't entirely correct. So I I, I will take take an L there. <laughs> <laughs> because now I still have not found, and this is my own, my own personal judgment, I have not yet found a shochu or awamori that I can swap out in a martini and, and be happy. Okay. But that could just be how much I love a gin martini. No, I th- and I and I think if you swap out the gin for something for an awamori for instance then it needs to be called something else maybe it's a it's a new cocktail it's a new a new classic to use that cliche i mean uh, all right apologies this is a disclaimer right off the top if this turns into a honkaku spirits advertisement i apologize but that's what we have been working with over the past three years that's what i have by far the most experience with so i'm going to drop a few brand names here i'm, I'm going to try to keep it to a minimum but that, you know, and everything that I say, I'm sure there are other brands out there with similar flavor aroma profiles that could be substituted in as, as well. So, you know, experiment out there, be creative. Yeah. But um, like, for instance, just working with Yoka Koji over the last couple of months and seeing how that works in different cocktails and seeing how, and I know I'm going out on a limb here, I'm probably going to get blasted for this, but you really can use it in the... At, you know, in place of a rye or or other whiskey in some cocktails, you can use it in place of gin in many cocktails. You can sometimes use it in in place of an agave spirit in a lot of cocktails. It's just there's so much flexibility. It's such a it's a five tool player almost. You know, to use a baseball reference, and it's something that every bartender probably is going to want to have in their toolkit in order to take something like the old fashioned in a new direction. You want to take a preakness in a new direction. I used Yoka Koji in a Martinez and it was so much better than it needed to be. I was so pleased with it. And, uh, you know, Martinez is, is technically older than a martini as, as cocktail history goes. But I think there's a lot of undiscovered home runs out there, grand slams even, that we just need a, a few creative people paying attention to long enough to uncover them. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You're you're leading, you're leading off with your best hitter. I think um, <laughs> you got your clean up <laughs> yeah, clean up okay. hitter in in the in the leadoff spot because Yoko Koji is is really incredible uh, spirit for mixing. And I think where where that really came home to roost f- for me was when we had the home Koji spirits cocktail competition at Bar uh, Ugle, which actually I learned later is pronounced Ugla, which is even worse. But um, Apologies to the bar for mispronouncing it all over the place. Ugla. Um, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's apparently a, a Scandinavian uh, pronunciation. Oh. Uh, because a lot of the interior decor is, is, is a Danish, you know, mid-century modern sort of things. Hmm. Um, anyway, I digress. The two cocktails that tied, uh, or and of course we had to choose a winner, but they both called for rice-based koji spirits. One used awamori and one used uh, vacuum distilled rice shochu. Okay. And... We ended up using Yoka Koji as the Awamori, and that worked beautifully. And then we made the rice shochu uh, drink with 
a vacuum distilled rice shochu, but then I asked the bartender, Tsutsumi-san, to make it again with yokokoji, and it was even better. Yeah. Because yokokoji gives everything body. I actually love it in a Moscow mule. I like it as a vodka replacement. That's interesting. Because it gives more texture and body to these vodka-based cocktails. So it really is this incredibly flexible cocktail base. And it's also a beautiful spirit just to drink on its own, right? On the rocks or in a highball or or whatever. It's just a really, really lovely awamori expression. Mm-hmm. That's that's a fun one to lead off with. But I think we'd be remiss not to give a shout out to Jesse Fallowitz and Taiko Ichioka of Mizu Shochu. Oh, yeah. I mean, these really uh, changed, I think, the landscape of shochu cocktails in the U.S., by creating a portfolio of 35% alcohol shochu that really does stand up in cocktails. It really stands out. And I think for them, the, the direction that they went was they used vacuum distillation for the Mizu products and they express so nicely in tall drinks. Mm. And they also have beautiful aromatics because of the vacuum distillation that I think can make Mizu an excellent replacement for things like gin, right? Mm-hmm. And their, their highball program is pretty fantastic. It is. Like if you go check out their social media, they've just got incredible recipes. And I think what, for me, the, the proof is in the pudding. The Flirty Bird has been on the menu at Angel Share for nine years running. This is a, a shochu-based cocktail that's had a nine-year run created by Shingo Gokan when he was at Angel Share. And it's still there. And it's it's uh, their original barley shochu, yuzu juice, agave syrup, and shiso leaves, torn, shaken, and then served over a big cube and then garnished with shiso leaf and a plum salt rim. Mm. And it is a crowd favorite. It's good. Yeah. It's a really, really excellent cocktail. Now, it's not really, I don't think it's a riff on a classic. I think it's its own thing. And that's great, right? I don't know. Is it a, is it a? Have to ask Jesse. <laughs> I yeah, I'm 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 not educated enough to be able to say what that is similar to. Yeah, but I mean you've got you've got yuzu and shiso and shochu, right? That's a pretty Japanese cocktail. <laughs> yep. Right. Not not things you would normally find. Anyway, I think it's really past time having them uh one or both of them on the show to talk about their journey. Uh Jesse really was the OG when it came to creating a shochu brand. Uh for export. Absolutely. I mean, high five, hat tip, bear hug, all of the things to Jesse and Taiko for starting so early. I mean, they really were, they were, I, I think OG is the, is the correct term there and they are still kicking it and they're still killing it. And, you know, just tons of respect, tons of respect all over the place for them. And, you know, while we're on this topic, uh, a couple of the other major names in the game, names such as Nankai and Mujen, both in California that are bringing in brands and really pursuing a very cocktail-focused attack plan for how to get these drinks in front of consumers in a variety of venues. They have uh, very different uh, sets of accounts that they're working with to get to the different means to the same end, the end being we're just trying to get these drinks in as in front of as many people as possible. And they're just cocktails all over social. If you, if you follow, if you don't follow them, look up Mizu, Nankai and Mujen. We'll put them in the show notes. They're working nonstop nine to five and all hours in between and outside of that. 
to get creative folks working with their spirits and and getting them to look beautiful. And everywhere you go normally, shochu is finding its way into those conversations. Yep. And you're right. Th- these these three different uh, companies are all doing a great job in, in getting the word out for shochu through cocktails. I guess where our education began to accelerate in earnest was you came to me one at one point and said, the team at Honkaku Spirits is asking for cocktail recipes. And I think I looked at you with a blank stare and said, how about coffee and soda with Mugi Hoka? Does that count as a cocktail? Like, I think that was <laughs> well, sort of where it started. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that it, that's uh, after several tweaks, it ended up being what a coffee soda, which we shortened to Coda. So it's a that's that's our thing. And, and you know, I think that was the first real shochu cocktail recipe that Honkaku Spirits could ever boast. That was yours. Yeah, I can't really take that much credit because I just threw ingredients at the problem and Jake Tenenbaum, fortunately, did the development work. And honestly, I think it probably remains a work in progress. Or maybe you tell me you were just in market. Is is uh, Have you tried any latest iterations of that or the ways people are using Mugi Hoka in coffee drinks? Oh, yeah. I mean, espresso martinis from coast to coast. I mean, everywhere you go, it's finding its way into that conversation. There are, I found a couple of bars that had kind of come to the same conclusion with it in very different ways, but they were kind of using it as a light nighttime pick-me-up that was also lower ABV. So you're getting a little bit of an espresso hit in the evening, maybe when you, you know, you just had a you had had a cocktail before and maybe you were feeling a little too relaxed and you needed a little bit of caffeine in there and boom, you get a little more alcohol with some espresso in there. And though I was told that those evening espresso martinis with a little bit of a lighter alcohol payload were actually incredibly popular with the clientele and had been on the menu for quite some time. So yeah, it, you know, coffee drinks all over the place. Yeah, I, I guess that's almost the easiest way to start. And that's where my head went originally when we had that conversation is how do people drink shochu or awamori in Japan? And then that can be built out into an actual recipe. I mean, apart from sparkling water, which is used in lots of cocktails, shochu sometimes enjoyed with green tea or barley tea. And then of course, coffee and awamori is is pretty, like very popular in Okinawa. I thought of those roasted barley notes from Mugihoka and figured it would just naturally lend itself to a coffee drink. Oh, absolutely. But that was just such, such a low-hanging fruit, you know, for somebody like me who's like, I don't want a sweet cocktail. What can I do? <laughs> yeah. All right, coffee and coffee and barley. <laughs> yeah, and the awamori reference that you just made, that comes to people's minds very quickly when they taste it for the first time. They're like, oh, this is going to work well with coffee. And it does. It works very, very, very well. As for... Mugi Hoka going in other directions. I think I might've said this to you before. I don't know, or maybe I didn't, but one of the best pina coladas I've ever had in my life. And I haven't had a lot. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I've had, I've had them um, near beaches in, you know, those outdoor bars before, usually because someone gave it to me, but I went to a bar in Miami that specializes in them and makes them with fresh coconut and fresh pineapple, just you know, made to order beautiful, beautiful pina coladas. And they used Mugi Hoka in one. And I was like, holy crap, that's good. And I really didn't expect it. But when you think about it, the roasty toasty notes there really do complement everything that's going on in a pina colada. So 
all of the eye-opening moments spun together. And I know that you were skeptical at first. I know you're probably a little bit skeptical still, but I think you've certainly come around to some degree, haven't you? It's been a slow progression, but absolutely. It was a revelation for me once we started talking with bartenders and realizing how naturally a, a high aromatic sweet potato shochu is actually a perfect gin replacement in some uses, in some drinks. Sure. And I think I now actually prefer shochu Negronis to gin Negronis, which I never thought I'd say those words out loud. Mm. At first, I thought you had to bump up the shochu to overcome the lower ABV. And it turns out that's not always necessary. You definitely need to tweak the ratios to get the balance right. Uh, but once you find it, you've got an incredible drink. Yeah, they, they are. Ama- I mean, Negroni riffs all day long. And I know Negroni week is not too far off. Um, and hey, you know, back to Mugi Hoka. A Mugi Hoka Negroni is absolutely delightful. I had one for the first time on this most recent trip. Of course, colorful Negroni. Yup all day. There's just so much that can be done there. And there's there's like a lot of bars that serve almost nothing but Negronis these days. So it's definitely the right season for it. It's almost embarrassing to talk about Negronis because they're so popular right now. And it seems like virtually every base spirit is making their own Negroni riff. And a lot of them work really well. It's true. It's a very nice drink with gin. And it can be a different experience with mezcal or awamori or shochu. I mean, I really like colorful uh, in a Negroni, which I I think you mentioned before. For that one, I do bump up the colorful a little bit uh, to get a little bit more of the shochu aromatics out of it. But then with Mugi Hoka, it almost becomes a chocolate Negroni. And you don't need to do anything. You've got a 25% base spirit that's replacing a 40-47% gin at the same one-to-one-to-one ratio. And it's just a really, really nice drink. So pretty wild how that works. now. Maybe since you just came back from a long trip in the States, it'd be great to hear what you learned on that trip and how it's changed your thinking or what what kind of conversations you were having uh, with bartenders while you were there. Uh, You know, it's only been a week since I've been back, so I haven't even really processed everything at this point. But I mean, I did spend an awful lot of time studying cocktails. I spent so many evenings visiting multiple cocktail bars and trying to connect with various people both on both sides of the bar just to learn about what they're doing, what makes them tick, what types of things they're looking for on the menu. I was thinking about how you word the recipe in a menu. What happens if you put mezcal first? What if mezcal is a third ingredient? You know, how, how quickly does it fly off the menu or how many times does it get ordered per night? And people have theories which are really fun to it's it's interesting to listen to the method to pick people's brain about how they put the the recipe together on the cocktail menu and what goes first and what goes second it's not necessarily volume um it may be more what you can taste first but um or smell first but it was it was an experience of just i, I wasn't i wasn't playing dumb i really was i didn't know anything I, I still don't know anything about cocktails i'm still learning i need to go bar back for a couple of months somewhere just to really take it all in but what I have learned again is that I love the creativity of it. And I love it when somebody can take an ingredient that's as interesting as something like sweet potato shochu and can make it shine alongside other ingredients in the cocktail. And what we've seen, and to go back to the years and years of, of all the cocktail mixing that we saw over, you know, for a decade where people were being paid to put 
shochu in a drink. They were being, you know, they were being comped lots of product or being sold product at ridiculous prices to get it into a cocktail for an event for a for a one-off menu or something. And the shochu would just disappear. And I think that's where all four of our collective eyeballs just kind of rolled into the back of our heads and like out of the back of our heads and like onto the floor. Cause we were like, what is the freaking point of using such a beautiful spirit? If it's just going to get destroyed and overridden by everything else that's been cranked into this drink that kind of shored up my intention to be a purist. And my, my mindset for years was just to go in and say, listen, you can do whatever you want with this, but I'm going to tell you how people in Japan actually enjoy it with their dinner. There's a very large proportion of the people that I spoke to on this most recent tour that want to hear that story. But then at the end, they need to know. They will ask if you don't bring it up. They're like, okay, so how do I serve this? And when they ask that question, they're not asking for you to tell them how to make an oyuwari. They're not telling you how to you know, make the perfect you know, Mizuari or how to, you know, what size rocks to use in an in on the rocks preparation. No, they want to know, like, if I was to mix a, a simple cocktail with this, what would you recommend? And they want to hear your ideas in many cases. So that became a very normal part of the spiel. That became something that I was ready to lock into and and unload on at any moment during the conversation. And it made a big difference because I I just shifted my priorities to include that part of the conversation, which before I, you know, I would hope that somebody else had some ideas most of the time. Oh, that's, that's great insight on how to communicate with bartenders about, about these spirits. You learned a lot on, on that trip and, and I'm looking forward to getting back into market. We'll be actually, we're going together to Tales of the Cocktail in July down in New Orleans, and that's going to be a masterclass in, in bartending and cocktails for us. No doubt. We're going to learn, learn so much while we're there. Yeah, my liver is already shuddering. <laughs> yeah, mine too. I think we need to uh, maybe be sobriety buddies and and uh, try to pace ourselves a little bit. It can it can be dangerous. Yep. I think the the last thing I wanted to talk about is split base, because the first Honkaku Spirits cocktail that ended up on the menu at Death and Company was actually a split base with Takumine Koji whiskey. That's right. Yeah, it was like Old Forester and Hampton Overproof. Yeah, so you got three different spirits all in the same cocktail. And that split base concept is another really interesting one because you get different character from an Overproof rum, from a Koji whiskey, from a, an American whiskey. And I guess for me, the most unexpected split base cocktail that I came across, and I just sort of stumbled across it, was at a cocktail bar in New York City called Singlish. The bartender... Jane Nam actually created a split base Takamine whiskey and colorful sweet potato shochu cocktail. That's so cool. When I tried it, I was fascinated. How does whiskey and sweet potato shochu work as a split base? But it works so well. But she hadn't given it a name because it was basically her bartender's handshake. It wasn't on the menu. It was just something she'd serve to her friends or, you know, the bartenders would stop by for a drink. And so I volunteered Jane's addiction because I'm obsessed with the drink just like she is. And it's just so good. And she was pretty happy that, that I was willing to give it a name. So uh, I'm sure that'll end up on the Honkaku Spirits website at some point. I hope so. Yeah, no, my next trip, I'm definitely going to have to go. I haven't been there yet, so I'm excited to go. Yeah, tiny little place, second floor of what used to be a, a French sandwich coffee shop. Like, <laughs> has no business being a pretty amazing cocktail bar, but it's uh, it's fun. It's really fun. 
Well, I guess now that we both talked ourselves into a bit of a thirst, what are you sipping on? You're sipping on something good? I think this is one time where you know exactly what I'm sipping on. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's quickly become my favorite cocktail, which is the colorful Alaska. The Alaska is a classic gin cocktail, but I don't think it's super popular. And I think I know why. Uh, yellow chartreuse and gin are both highly aromatic, obviously. Mm -hmm. But apparently to make a proper Alaska, you need old Tom gin. But so few places have that behind the bar anymore uh, that they usually make it with a dry gin. And it's just bracing when it's a, a, a dry gin and uh, yellow chartreuse. Mm -hmm. But making an Alaska with sweet potato shochu is just such a pretty drink. But this is definitely a case where you need to bump up the shochu. You need to tweak the ratios because the chartreuse is such a strongly flavored liqueur. It's got, what, 60 or 70 different botanicals in it, in the yellow. The classic recipe is two parts gin, one part yellow chartreuse with a dash of orange bitters. I punch up the 30% alcohol colorful to 3 or 3.5 to 1 with against the yellow chartreuse. And I use strong water orange bitters from Denver, Colorado, uh, which is a craft bitter maker out, out there. And it, it's pretty excellent that way and then not everybody uses citrus but i express a little lemon peel over it the reason it's called the alaska is because the yellow chartreuse gives the drink a golden color it's a really really pretty drink just to look at and of course it's delicious as well so sorry that was a lot to throw at you what, what are you sipping on <laughs> far simpler we were talking about koji spirit so i used a sweet potato shochu based gin in a gin and tonic. I just, I went very simple. Didn't have a lot of time. <laughs> uh, two ingredients rather than three. <laughs> <laughs> you did this again. You did this with our uh, $200 Koji Spirits Home Bar episode. You're like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> just like when my back's against the wall <laughs> and I can't find my damn mixing glass, I, <laughs> I pull out some clear cubes and I pour some gin. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty simple. You do still have my jigger. I need my jigger back. Oh, okay. Yeah, I do have it. And I bought myself a new one when I was in California. So it's, I can let go of yours now. It's fine. Nice. I'll be glad to have it back <laughs> and get back to proper ratios instead of guessing. <laughs> yeah. I love drinks with equal or almost equal ratios. So let's get more of that, please. Anybody out there experimenting, let's go one to one on the two main ingredients. Let's see if we can keep that consistent. Makes it dead easy. Yeah. Or one to one to one if it's three ingredients. Sure. I'm a big fan of the 50-50 martini. Uh, the, the texture with the with the vermouth is fantastic. So anyway. I'm a fan of the, the Churchill. You pour the gin into glass, you salute the vermouth from across the room, then you drink the gin. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> On that note, uh, this was fun. Glad we found time to do this. <laughs> yeah. Well, and thank you to all of you out there for listening. If you have not already, please consider rating and reviewing the Japan Distilled podcast wherever you enjoy listening to these episodes. It really does help other people find the show. And of course, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram. You can find me at Chris Pellegrini on Twitter and at Christopher Pellegrini on Instagram. How about you, Stephen? You can reach out to me at Japan Distilled on both Twitter and Instagram. Please check out our website, japandistilled.com, for the show notes on this and every episode. And also, please tune into our Japan Distilled show Tuesday, almost every Tuesday, evening, 9 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Wednesday in Japan. We missed a few, but we're back in it. We are indeed. And don't forget to sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash japandistilled. Kanpai. Kanpai. 
We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled Podcast. This has been Christopher Pellegrini with my co-host Stephen Lyman. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Audio engineering by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost stories. 